0: Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a hard cider. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a twisted tea, and for the next
1: few months, we're doing something a little different and having monthly themes to our episodes. We're starting off this serial killer themed month by looking at one of the most infamous serial killers of all time, Jack the Ripper. The Whitechapel neighborhood of London was terrorized by this mysterious killer in 1888. Since then, Jack the Ripper has become synonymous with unsolved serial killers and sparked many people's interest in true crime. We are going to look at the canonical five victims of Jack the Ripper. Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. Attacks attributed to Jack the Ripper typically involved female prostitutes who lived and worked in the slums of the East End of London. On January 31, 1888, the body of Mary Ann Nichols was found in Bucks Row, Whitechapel. She was last seen alive approximately one hour before her body was found. When examined, her body showed signs of horrific injuries. Her throat had been severed by two deep cuts, her vagina was stabbed, her bowels were protruding from a deep slash wound. She also had another stab marking on her abdomen. Then, at 6 a.m. on September 8th, Annie Chapman's body was found in the backyard at 29 Hanbury Street. She exhibited the same wounds as Nichols with the addition of her uterus and sections of her bladder and vagina being removed. While investigating Chapman's murder, a witness, Elizabeth Long, described a man she saw Chapman with about 30 minutes before her murder. This man had dark hair and was wearing a deer stalker hat, dark overcoat, and a shabby gentile appearance. The last part was used to describe someone who was born into a high social standing. According to this eyewitness, the man had asked Chapman the question, quote-unquote, will you, to which Chapman had replied, quote-unquote, yes. Jack the Ripper escalated in the early morning hours of September 30th, 1888, as both Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddles were killed. Stride's body was found at 1.30 a.m. in Dutesfield Yard. Her carotid artery had been cut with one incision. Many speculate that the Ripper was interrupted during her murder as there was no further mutilation like the other victims. Witnesses gave conflicting accounts of a man they saw Stride with, with some stating he was well-dressed and others describing him as shabbily dressed. Witnesses also described him as fair or dark. Catherine Edel's body was found about forty-five minutes after Stride's body in a corner of Meter Square. Her throat was severed with her abdomen being slashed to the point that her intestines were visible. Edel's left kidney had been removed and she had mutilation to the point the coroner stated it would take several minutes to complete the mutilation. A local cigarette salesman had passed through the square with two friends shortly before the murder, and he described seeing a fair-haired man of shabby appearance with a woman who may have been Eddowes.
0: A section of Eddowes' bloodied apron was found at the entrance to a tenement in Golston Street, Whitechapel, at 2.55 a.m. A chalk inscription upon the wall directly above this piece of apron read, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Such graffiti was commonplace in Whitechapel. Police Commissioner Charles Warren feared that the graffiti might spark anti Semitic riots and ordered the writing washed away before dawn. The message appeared to imply that a Jewish person or Jewish people in general were responsible for the series of murders, but it is unclear whether the graffiti was written by the murderer on dropping the section of the apron or was merely incidental and nothing to do with the case. The last canonical victim was Mary Jane Kelly. Her body was found lying on a bed at 13 Miller's Court. She received the worst of the Ripper's wrath with her face quote-unquote hacked beyond all recognition. Her throat was slashed and her abdomen was emptied of its organs. Her uterus, kidneys, and one breast had been placed beneath her head. Her heart was missing from the scene. Multiple ashes found within the fireplace at 13 Miller's court suggested Kelly's murderer had burned several combustible items to illuminate the single room as he mutilated her body. One thing that added interest to the case were the letters Jack the Ripper supposedly sent. Three letters that received the most attention were the quote-unquote Dear Boss letter, the quote-unquote Saucy Jackie postcard, and the From Hell letter. The Dear Boss letter was dated September 25th and postmarked September 27th. Scotland Yard obtained the letter from the Central News Agency. It reads, quote, Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was i gave the lady no time to squeal how can they catch me now i love my work and want to start again you will soon hear of me with my funny little games i saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with but it went thick like glue and i can't use it red ink is fit enough i hope ha ha the next job i do i shall clip the lady's ears off And send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work and then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. End quote. At first, the letter was considered a hoax, but when Catherine Eddowes' body was found with a nick in her ear, the letter gained investigative importance.
1: The Saucy Jack postcard was sent and received on October 1st, 1888. There is some dispute over the authenticity of this postcard due to it not containing any non-public information. The text reads, quote, I was not codding dear old boss when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jackie's work tomorrow, double event this time, number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off. Had not time to get ears off for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again, Jack the Ripper, end quote. Police later said that the Dear Boss letter and the Saucy Jackie postcard were written by a journalist. In 1931, journalist Fred Bess of The Star claimed that all the letters written and signed, quote-unquote, Jack the Ripper, were in order to, quote-unquote, keep the business alive. The truth of the actual writer is still unknown. However, in 2018, a forensic linguistic analyst found strong linguistic evidence suggesting that this postcard and the, quote-unquote, Dear Boss letter were written by the same person. In the years after the Ripper murders, the Saucy Jackie Postcard disappeared from police files. Although the Dear Boss letter was recovered in 1987, the Saucy Jackie Postcard is still missing. The quote-unquote from hell letter was sent to George Lust, the chairman of the White Chapel Vigilance Committee, in October 1888. It came into the possession of the City of London Police and later transferred to the Metropolitan Police. The original letter and the kidney which accompanied it have since been lost or stolen, along with other contents that were contained in the Metropolitan Police Ripper files. It reads, quote, From hell, Mr. Luss, sore. I sent you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you together piece I fried and ate it was very nice I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a little longer sign catch me when you can Mr. Lust and one thing that we wanted to know about this letter is that it contains a lot of grammatical mistakes as compared to the other writings of Jack the Ripper. The primary reason this letter stands out more than any other is that it was delivered with a small box containing half of what doctors later determined was a human kidney, which had been preserved in spirits. As a reminder, Catherine Edel's kidneys have been removed by the killer.
0: Jack the Ripper's identity has remained a mystery for over 100 years. The identity of the killer or killers has been widely debated and over 100 suspects have been named. Over 2,000 people were interviewed, quote-unquote upwards of 300 people were investigated, and 80 people were detained. We are going to look at four suspects, Aaron Kosminski, George Hitchinson, James Kelly, and William Henry Burry. Aaron Kosminski was a Polish Jew who was admitted to Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum in 1891. He was named as a suspect by Sir Melville McNattan in his 1894 memorandum and by former Chief Inspector Donald Swanson in handwritten comments in the margin of his copy of Assistant Commissioner Sir Robert Anderson's memoirs. Anderson wrote that, quote, The only person who had ever had a good view of the murderer unhesitatingly identified the suspect the instant he was confronted with him, end quote. The suspect also apparently fit their profile, quote, a sexual maniac of a virulent type. That he was living in the immediate vicinity of the scenes of the murders, and that if he was not living immediately alone, his people knew of his guilt and refused to give him up to justice. End quote. Kosminski lived in Whitechapel. However, he was largely harmless in the asylum. His insanity took the form of auditory hallucinations, a paranoid fear of being fed by other people, a refusal to wash or bathe, and quote unquote self abuse. George Hutchinson was an unemployed laborer. On November 12, 1888, he made a formal statement to the London police that in the early hours of November 9, 1888, Mary Jane Kelly approached him in the street and asked him for money. He stated that he had then followed her and another man of conspicuous appearance to her room and had watched the room for about three quarters of an hour without seeing either leave. He gave a very detailed description of the man claiming that he was, quote, of Jewish appearance, end quote. He gave a very detailed description of the man, claiming he was quote-unquote of Jewish appearance despite the darkness of that night. The accuracy of Hutchinson's statement was disputed among the senior police. Some modern scholars have suggested that Hutchinson was the Ripper himself trying to confuse the police with a false description, but others suggest he may have just been an attention seeker who made up a story he hoped to sell to the press.
1: James Kelly was first identified as a suspect in Terrence Sharkley's Jack the Ripper Hundred Years of Investigation. James Kelly murdered his wife in 1883 by stabbing her in the neck. Deemed insane, he was committed to Broadmoor Asylum, from which he later escaped in early 1888 using a key he fashioned himself. After the last of the five canonical Ripper murders in London in November of 1888, the police searched for Kelly at what had been his residence prior to his wife's murder, but they were not able to locate him. In 1927, almost 40 years after his escape, he unexpectedly turned himself into officials at the Broadmoor Asylum. He died two years later, presumably, of natural causes. William Henry Burry, had recently moved to Dundee from the east end of London when he strangled his wife, Ellen Elliott, a former prostitute, on February 4th, 1889. He inflicted extensive wounds to her abdomen after she was dead and packed the body into a trunk. A link with the Ripper crimes was investigated by police, but Burry denied any connection. Despite making a full confession to his wife's homicide, nevertheless, the executioner, James Berry, promoted the idea that Berry was the Ripper. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle advanced another theory altogether involving a female murderer dubbed, quote-unquote, Jill the Ripper. Supporters of this theory believe that the murderer worked or at least posed as a midwife who could be seen with bloody clothes without attracting suspicion and would be more easily trusted by the victims than a man and also less likely to get caught because of the misogyny by police officers. Despite the murders happening in 1888, Jack the Ripper remains a notorious figure. Jenny, What are your thoughts on Jack the Ripper and do you have a prime suspect?
0: I honestly did not know that much about Jack the Ripper before this. So thanks for educating me on this. Like we keep saying notorious figure legend in the true crime community. And I guess like within pop culture and like just world history at large, the brutality really sticks with me. I knew he was butchering women but to the degree that this occurred is really upsetting to hear and most of it was post-mortem which i mean i'm glad the women didn't have to endure that but to desecrate a body like that is truly despicable i don't know if i do have a prime suspect i think maybe burry Sounds like he could be a good suspect because he was, he had killed his wife who was a former prostitute and she did have wounds to her abdomen. I think a lot of people in this case have a few things that really make them sound like a good suspect and then a few things that make you think, okay, maybe they didn't do it. I think the idea of Jill the Ripper is really interesting. I think that is kind of a compelling theory about how a woman could get away with this because people wouldn't really suspect a woman to do it. And a midwife would have a lot of this surgical medical knowledge. But a lot of people said that they saw men around the time. And To me, there is a sexual nature to these crimes, which of course a woman could do, but I think a man was probably more likely to commit that. So I don't really have a a good prime suspect, which is kind of sad, and I guess it adds to the fact that this will probably never be solved, which is upsetting too, but it's a, a wild part of time that we're going to get more into. What do you think, Doe? I agree with you. I think that Jack the Ripper is one of those cases
1: where a lot of the mythology of Jack the Ripper has clouded how brutal the murders were. I think that it's easier for people to think about brutal murders that are more recent or in modern times, like Ted Bundy, or Jeffrey Dahmer, but what Jack the Ripper did to his victims really set the stage for how we think of serial killers as these diabolical people who have no respect for human life whatsoever. For me, when it comes to a prime suspect, I think James Kelly really stands out. The fact that he murdered his wife in a very similar way to Jack the Ripper and He had escaped from an asylum before the murder started. Definitely give me pause. I also, when looking at all of the suspects, like you said, there's always that one detail that stands out that kind of dissuades me from thinking that it was them. And unfortunately... I do agree with you that I don't think this is going to be solved. I think this is one of the cases where people really expected that it was going to be a deathbed confession type of thing. And then we would learn about it. But at this point, it would take some uncovering of really strong evidence to be able to point the finger at one individual when it comes to committing these crimes. We didn't touch too much on the other White Castle murders, but London during that time was a hotbed for serial killers. And so I think that also adds to the difficulty with solving this case, because while a person may have committed some other White Chapel murders, they may not have committed the canonical five murders and vice versa.
0: Jack the Ripper created one of the first media frenzies around serial killers and can arguably be credited with helping to create the general public interest in true crime. Mass circulation newspapers cost as little as a half penny, along with popular magazines such as the Illustrated Police News, which made the Ripper the beneficiary of previously unparalleled publicity. Sensational press reports combined with the fact that no one was ever convicted of the murders have confused scholarly analysis and created a legend that cast a shadow over later serial killers. The unknown killer also helped start the practice of naming killers. The invention and adoption of a nickname for a particular killer became standard media practice with examples such as the Axeman of New Orleans, the Boston Strangler, and the Beltway Sniper. Examples derived from Jack the Ripper include the French Ripper, the Dusseldorf Ripper, the Camden Ripper, the Blackout Ripper, Jack the Stripper, the Yorkshire Ripper, and the Rostov Ripper. The Ripper appears in novels, short stories, poems, comic books, games, songs, plays, operas, television programs, and films. More than 100 nonfiction works deal exclusively with the Jack the Ripper murders, making this case one of the most written about in the true crime genre. The term quote-unquote ripperology was coined by Colin Wilson in the 1970s to describe the study of the case by professionals and amateurs. A ripperologist is a person who is interested in the mystery of Jack the Ripper. In 2015, the Jack the Ripper Museum opened in East London. Jenny,
1: what are your thoughts on the everlasting legacy of Jack the Ripper?
0: We talked recently about crimes of the century, and I think Jack the Ripper is really the epitome of a crime of the century. It came at a time where more people were able to read, newspapers were really being circulated, and they were affordable, so that helped get the name out. The crime was, I guess, deplorable enough to get a lot of attention and to keep people on their toes, even though East London at the time was pretty violent, like you had said. So to me, it makes sense, and... I think it's really interesting to go back and talk about these first, one of the first. We've done that with Lizzie Borden, we've done that with a few other cases. There's something interesting and I think inherently creepy about going back and looking at a historical true crime. I have never heard of the term ripperology or ripperologists, but I mean I guess with a case being so popular, I'm sure like people all over the Western world at least are familiar with Jack the Ripper. It kind of makes sense to have a name and That is a really interesting point about the nickname of the killer. And I wonder if in a way it's done to kind of scare people and to help, I don't want to say promote safety because it's like promoting the magazines really, but to, Hey, Jack, the Rippers out there, be on the lookout, stay inside. If you're a sex worker, you know, you got to be careful out there. There is an element of I don't want to say drama, but it is like it's a character. Who is this Jack the Ripper? Who is this person out there doing this? I guess it is kind of like a drama. There's a lot of drama involved and it's clear that it is a drama because there were so many dramatizations as well. It's interesting how This is an everlasting legacy. It's interesting to see like what hits and what doesn't and what stays with the public. I think Jack the Ripper is one of the worst, but there's a ton of people, a ton of serial killers out there that have done equally as brutal, if not worse things. And they're not as widely known for whatever reason. I think it's really interesting to kind of analyze the history and the media and what was going on at the time. What do you think?
1: I agree with you. I think Jack the Ripper was a serial killer that definitely benefited from yellow journalism or over sensationalizing of tragedy in order to sell newspapers. I definitely think that in general, when a crime is unsolved, especially a horrific crime, it definitely adds to people's intrigue about it. It's that mystery that is not solved. And I think that or and other people within the true crime sphere a lot of times are like, I'm going to be the one to crack the case. I'm going to have the theory that totally buses this over 100-year-old case open. And I think when it comes to the media, obviously their job is to sell papers. And I do think that giving a name to something no matter how horrific helps to do that. Because like you said, it becomes a drama instead of this person really being known for their crimes. They're known for their name and they are then associated with this other group of horrible people. So you have Jack the Ripper, you have the clown killer, John Wayne Gacy, you have all these names and That's how people conceptualize serial killers in a lot of ways. It's not, oh, this person is a serial killer that killed 30 people. It's, oh, I'm learning about Jack the Ripper and his canonical five victims. Obviously, within true crime, there's always the debate of at what point are you over-analyzing or over-sensationalizing things. And I think that the major difference between current true crime and when Jack the Ripper was becoming popularized is that a lot more people are going into those gritty details so that it's not just, oh, look at this mythical creature named Jack the Ripper. It's like, no, there was a serial killer name Jack the Ripper, and this is what he did. And while we use his name in a way to make sure that people know who we're talking about, it's definitely not something that I think is good because I remember I shared something with you recently where it was like, how about we stop giving serial killers cool names and then maybe we'll have less serial killers. And I definitely agree with that. Like it's a joke, but also on the other hand, it's like very real because a part of what makes a serial killer besides being a depraved individual is the fact that they're seeking attention, especially those like Jack the Ripper that reach out to the police. The Zodiac Killer is probably another great example of that. So while I think that the legacy of Jack the Ripper will remain with us, I do hope that in the future we become more cognizant of making sure that we are sharing what he actually did and not just the mythology around him. You know, he's not the person that got away from the police, the person that got away with his crimes. He's the person that killed at least five women and brutalized them. Jack the Ripper also sparked what can be termed true crime tourism. True crime tourism can be broadly defined as the visiting of specific sites where murderers lived, committed their crimes, or were imprisoned. This also includes visiting sites associated with victims. In addition to the Ripper Museum, Jack the Ripper's murder sites are frequently visited. Despite bearing little resemblance to the streets, Jack the Ripper walked in 1888. There are sites like these for other infamous killers. The Last Resort, a biker bar in Port Armand, Florida, is famous for being the site where Eileen Warnos was arrested. The jury room is associated with the co-ed killer, Edmund Kipper, and he was frequently seen chatting with cops there. The L Tavern in Chicago was apparently a place where John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer were regulars. Of course, there is the Lizzie Wharton House in Fall River, Massachusetts, which is now a bed and breakfast museum. The Piken County Courthouse has a second story window where Ted Bundy jumped out of it back in 1977 during his escape. Probably one of the most famous examples is the Amneyville Horror House in Long Island, New York. The H.H. Holmes Murder Castle in Chicago, Illinois, which is now a post office. And you also have the villa in Miami Beach, Florida, where Johnny Versace was murdered. There is also The increasingly popular true crime tours, you have Mansonland tour in Los Angeles, which is aimed at those interested in Charles Manson. You have the Mansonland tours in Los Angeles, which are aimed at those that are interested in Charles Manson and the Manson family. You also have the Cream City Cannibal tour in Milwaukee, which is focused on Jeffrey Dahmer. Jenny, what are your thoughts on true crime tourism?
0: It typically doesn't sit right with me. I understand why people do go, but to me, it really just adds to this unnecessary fanfare around serial killers. And I know if my family member was murdered, I wouldn't want people to show up outside of their house or whatever on a tour taking pictures where someone was viciously murdered. I think that is pretty insensitive. I will say I love ghost tours, and they can sometimes be related to something sinister like brutal murders, but other times, you know, it it can be, it's, oh, this person built this really beautiful mansion, and now they're haunting the mansion, and I think with ghost tours, too, you do get a little bit more history. I've never done a true crime tour, so I can't say. I've been on ghost tours with true crime elements, like I've said, but I think there is typically... I don't know, something like educational and like of deeper value on a ghost tours, on a ghost tour. I guess I'm just kind of defending myself. But to me, there's something different in comparison to a true crime tour, especially like the Jeffrey Dahmer tour. It's icky to me. I don't like that. I will say of the places that you mentioned, Del, I do really want to visit the Versace mansion solely because it's a beautiful like architectural marvel and I would like to enjoy that. Maybe the Borden Museum as well, just more so I think because of like the history. And I guess it's easy to say too because that happened so long ago and there's... We've said this many times, it's easier to remove yourself and the horror around something when the crime happened years ago. So it's interesting to see how this has grown so much in the past. I feel like we're going to see a little bit of a decline in it at some point, because I think ethics around true crime are starting to be talked about more. But at the same time, I mean, these tours, I think are probably newer, too. So... I don't know. I think it's definitely for like a select group of people. I don't think any old tourist visiting LA or Milwaukee is putting this like at the top of their list. Yeah, it just generally gives me the ick as some people (laughs) like to say. What are your thoughts? I'm
1: of two minds when it comes to true crime tours. A part of me, definitely agrees with you, that it can fall into the Increased fascination with serial killers and keeping them in a widely known light, which is not good because we definitely don't want to encourage other individuals, oh, you're going to be able to become famous or infamous if you commit these crimes. Another part of me, though, is super interested in the different sites where things related to true crime have happened. And not from a sense of like needing to take trinkets or anything like that, but just being able to visualize all the different locations related to true crime stories that I've read and that we've talked about on this podcast. I think there is something to be said about actually being at the location and seeing if you get a feeling that something sinister has happened here. I know with the Amityville Horror House, a lot of people speak of it being haunted. And while I don't know if I necessarily believe it's haunted, I do think that just being there can shed a light on the different things that happened there. But when it comes to certain tours, I do think that they can go too far into kind of fetishizing serial killers. Like, there is no reason why you needed to include Cannibal in your tour name. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. It definitely seems like for that tour in particular, that that's the part that you want to emphasize. And the fact that it's focused on Jeffrey Dahmer and not just like the broad crimes that he committed, definitely speak to you are probably getting into how can we admire this person? How can we really try to do those deep dives into his psyche? Which at a certain point when it comes to serial killers, I don't think is very beneficial, especially if they've already been caught convicted. And in Dahmer's case, he's deceased at this point. I think that there is a way that you can talk about true crime. I think we do it on this podcast that is respectful to victims and acknowledge the horrors of the crime and specifically the dedicated tours. I don't think they do that.
0: I think that's a really good point about, you know, adding cannibal in the tour name to sensationalize it. And it's almost like poking fun at it because I think that is what Jeffrey Dahmer is so known for, like cannibalizing his victims but there is a lot more to the crime and it does just whittle it down to like the craziest quote-unquote craziest element of his story and I think you're right I think that it is possible to do it in a more empathetic way I understand for sure where you're coming from about wanting to visualize things because I think in certain cases it is necessary to have a better understanding of like a layout of a building or a town or where this person was. And when we research things, like I do sometimes go on like Google maps to get an idea. So I can understand both sides. Like I said, I think it generally be pretty gross, but I don't really fault anybody for wanting to go on any of these tours. Like I said, I'm a ghost tour person There's a lot to be criticized, I think, with the tours, but yeah, at the end of the day, I'm not going to fault anybody for wanting to, you know, learn more or anything like that. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about Jack the Ripper. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the Bloody Benders. As always, stay safe.